Hello, and welcome back to Pulp Today for the second part of my thought-provoking interview on the history of pulp with pulp historian Jess Nevins. So I'm curious, when, when you connect it to science fiction, horror, genre, where did Poe's work originally appear? Where did Verne's work originally appear? Where does H.G. Wells originally appear? Uh, Wells was hardcover. Verne was in the uh, French and popular magazines, and um, Poe was in the literary magazines of the 30s and 40s. So it's there. There's definitely there's a definite bleed over between the those sorts of stories and those sorts of uh, vehicles for stories and the pulps. There's not much difference really between the German dime novels of the 20s and 30s and what was in the French dime novels. Right. I use dime novels for lack of a better word. Right. But there's next to no difference between them and the American pulps. And you've got similar cheap magazines being published around the world. Uh, my Encyclopedia of Pulp Heroes covers a lot of them, and I'm just scratching the, I just scratched the surface. Right. So I, I tend to think of pulp fiction as being on a continuum that mutates over the years, but never really goes away. That's a good way to look at it. And I was just about to ask about you know, I assume there was uh, that there was an international publishing movement that was like that, that there were pulp magazines in, you know, most nations. Yeah, um, it began in 1905 when the publishers of the Buffalo Bill Dime novel um, made a deal with a German and then a French and then a Russian publisher in that order, I believe, to publish Buffalo Bill in translation and that started this craze that lasted about seven years up to the beginning of world war one in europe and asia and then in the 20s when publishing technology was a little better uh they started doing their own version of pulps and there were uh martial arts pulps in Indonesia and Malaysia. There were detective pulps in China. There the were- Buffalo, the, Buffalo Bill is the first running pulp character who's international? Yeah. Uh, they France had their own recurring serialized characters as of 1905, but there was something different about Buffalo Bill and the dime novel approach to what the French or the Germans were doing. Did you ever read uh, Glenn David Gold's uh, Sunny Side? He kind of deals with the international appeal of no. Uh, yeah, he kind of deals. There's a there's a section in there, if I'm remembering correctly, where the Kaiser hosts Buffalo Bill putting on a show, and it kind of talks about the the uh, international uh, appeal of him as a character. Uh, I think, right. yeah, I'm pretty sure that's in Sunnyside. You know, Glenn David Gold is probably my favorite living uh, novelist. His uh, Carter Beats the Devil has a... Oh, yeah. ...has a pulp novel flavor to it. It's easy to imagine that being serialized in a, in a good magazine. But uh, now we kind of see what we could call the death of the pulps as magazines in the mid-50s, 
Is that right? Yeah. After World War II, there was an initial surge in the number of pulps being sold, number of pulps hitting the stands, number of pulps being sold. Uh, but And there's a peak in 1949, but then there's a long slide after that. And by 1960, I think there's something like 12 pulps left being published. And uh, are any of those are any of those popular favorites? I'm trying to remember what would have been around in 1960. Um, Tom Savage was gone by then. I think The Shadow was gone by then. Uh, All of the 1930s adventure heroes, I think, are gone by then. I'm pretty sure Street and Smith was out of the business by that point. I'm not remembering what the 12 or 14 or whatever it was were, but I mean, were they were, were they action pulps, westerns, romance? Oh, it was it was a scattering. Although, if you want to include the true crime pulps, mm-hmm. yeah, then there was uh, there was a strong showing there, right? Uh, and and a lot of the true crime pulps being published at that point, but. Right. Uh, they were even they were making the transition to better paper right and uh, not digest size but just right. standard magazine size well and then you get them you know they're not pulps at all but you get what we colorfully call the sweat rags in the 1950s right. which my dad wrote for which my dad's novels were serialized in endlessly or abridged uh, man and adventure and stag and you know too many to name and those aren't pulps those are full magazine size but that paper is as pulpy as pulpy can be Uh, right and you also have the you have the 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 nascence of playboy magazine because you have the half-dressed girls not full nudity but it's a it's a it's a progression and hefner is the genius that says you know what we could take the fine literary stuff from the new yorker and the naked ladies from the pulp from the sweat mags photograph them much better uh and make that one thing and it's it's a it's a remarkable stroke of genius for fun not intended that he come he invents this new kind of magazine and no one was ever really able to repeat that success people tried glossy high tone semi-porn magazines but they didn't get norman mailer and they didn't get ian fleming and they didn't you know they didn't have that kind of high tone it is it is one of the uh, pinnacles of my career that I got a six page Betty Page comic published in uh, Playboy magazine. Nice. And Very by, nice. by sad or beautiful coincidence, it was the one that memorialized Hefner. It was the, the Christmas issue the year he died. They decided to put that in, uh, which was but that was one of the things you grow up being a writer, no matter what you think of Playboy magazine for a million other reasons. As a writer, it's a place where great literature actually was published. So right. uh, there, there is there there is some cachet to that, even to this day. But uh, is it the paperbacks that kill pulps? What kills pulps? Um, I think it was just an explosion of other media that became available. You had TV, you had comic books, you had movies and you had paperbacks i i don't think it's a coincidence coincidence that the decade that the comics sold the best was the 50s right right that was that was a cheaper alternative right for readers interested in disposable fiction right and 12 cents you can get two comics instead of one pulp and you're getting all the pretty pictures 
instead of just three illustrations in you know 40 pages uh so i can see right. that i'm always fascinated by for want of a better word the atomization of culture the way when burlesque dies one part goes off and becomes stand-up comedy in nightclubs one part goes off and becomes jazz in nightclubs and one part goes off and becomes strip clubs like the the way that a popular art form dies but it's dna every stand-up comedy team that you love from the 40s and 50s they're all burlesque guys they're all people right. who perform between uh striptease acts and also like with wortham and comic books there's also the social force of the prudes coming in and trying to crush a thing and what happens as the elements of that thing then scurry to find something else. Wortham is why we have superheroes. Right. And, I mean, to, that's, an, that's a vast oversimplification. And superheroes are also the inheritors of the Doc Savage, Shadow, the Spider of that audience, you know, which was starting to die out in the, in the pulps at the same time. Right. Um, in one of my books, I, I traced the lineage of the superhero pretty far back, but I would say most immediately the, the costumed Avengers and the pulps were what largely inspired the superhero. It, it is interesting to trace how the, the pulp, what the pulps did for the audience got atomized, how uh, it, a lot of it got mainstream. It's not a coincidence, I think, that a lot of the movies of the 60s, the most popular movies of the 60s, were taken from the story ideas, the concepts and the way they're, the plots are laid out. You can find pulp antecedents. Oh, sure, sure. But no, and that's a, that, yeah, of course, that's another, that's a whole other fascinating history how the war right. movie becomes the thriller, becomes the action movie, becomes the, you know, James Bond sort of bridges the war movie to action movie thing that we have today. I'm, fasc I'm always fascinated by the, the, the evolution of what people want to get out of entertainment and how they get it and how it's, how it's packaged to give to them. And again, how much of it comes from the pulps, comes from the 19th century. And as you obviously track comes from way back before that uh, right. I mean all the way back uh, many people have tracked the you know all of the connections between Superman and you know Moses and Jesus and all of that it's their and the, the the preponderance of Jewish writers in comic books and the messianic tradition in Judaism and all that my, my argument is that it goes back to the first piece of fiction ever written well the earliest surviving piece of fiction we have is the epic of Gilgamesh right and Gilgamesh's best friend Enkidu is the first superhero. Right, and I can go into I can go into detail about that ad nauseum. But yeah, <laughs> you, you've got you. It goes right through the Bible, and right through European culture, English culture, American culture. That that's a long tradition. Uh, it was nurtured in the pulps before it came of age in the late 30s and 40s in comic books and now is one of the dominant paradigms in popular culture today yeah so yeah yeah no and and as a as a writer as someone who works with the characters to me it's always fascinating to sort of trace the antecedents and know what it is 
I always think it's good to know what it is that you're ripping off is the wrong word, but knowing the tradition you're a part of. I wrote a, I wrote a Zorro series last year and, you know, I'm sure you can find the one before Percy Blakely, Blakeney, but it's like, you know, there is that timeline that goes, you know, moving backwards goes Batman to the shadow, to the, to Zorro, to Percy Blakeney, to Robin Hood. Speaking of, you know, nobles behaving like criminals in the name of justice as a, as a cliche. Um, right. And, uh, you know, there are, there are reasons why you like one over the other. I, you know, I, I, I did a panel on Zorro and I made a fair amount of fun of Batman uh, because, of, you know, uh, Zorro is, manages to do what Batman does and not be uh, mopey about it, which I, which I think is admirable. Like Robin, he, it's the Robin Hood thing of there's a joy in fighting for the oppressed. It, it gives a man pleasure to run a sword through the oppressor, as opposed to I am moodily beating up the Joker for the 500th time. Thanks for listening to part two. Come back next time for the thrilling conclusion of my Just Nevins interview. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.